Great, thank you. Well, today's message is entitled, Exodus, the Big Picture. Exodus, the Big Picture, an introduction. Well, in the summer of 19, excuse me, 1798, Napoleon Bonaparte dispatched a team of historians and scientists to Egypt, following in the wake of his invading army. A year later, these French scholars encountered the single most famous slab of stone in the history of archaeology. This priceless slab, weighing in at over 1,600 pounds, can still be seen in the British Museum today. It is called the Rosetta Stone, named after the location in which it was found on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in Egypt. You may be saying, what's the big deal about a stone? A slab of granite. What's this piece of stone that helped crack the mystery of Egyptian hieroglyphics? You see, on this stone was written the ancient text in three different languages, Greek and two Egyptian scripts. And by discovering this one piece of stone, scholars were able to take the known Greek script and language and thus interpret for the first time the Egyptian hieroglyphics. In a few short years, all the previously unknown hieroglyphic stories, decrees, and artifacts were made known to the world. The Rosetta Stone was critical in cracking the code and interpreting the code of hieroglyphics, thus interpreting the story of a people. Today, we too are going to go back to Egypt and to the surrounding deserts as well to interpret the story of a people, the people of God, you and me. We're going back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus. I realize for many of us here, perhaps reading Exodus, or at least the parts as pertain to the law, the tabernacle, and all the details, can seem like hieroglyphics, can it not? A code to be cracked. I know it's definitely true. When you get to about Exodus 21, if you've ever tried to read the Bible through in one year, it's Exodus 21, that last part of Exodus, and you cruise into Leviticus, it's when those, your eyes start glazing over. The drool comes. <laughs> and pretty soon you've abandoned all hope of reading through the Bible, at least the Old Testament, one year. And if you pick it up again, you'll probably find yourself back in the New Testament. It's a lot more familiar than the Old. Isn't it true? Well, there is good news and hope for you this morning. Today, we're going to take a look at the Rosetta Stone, the key to interpreting Exodus. That's my intent. I'm not referring to any esoteric secret knowledge that I have. I possess no decoder ring this morning, okay? No, no. We're going to look at the context of Exodus and the scripture around it, the text, to help us interpret this wonderful, amazing story. I admit to you, I have wrestled this morning, really this week, in how to deliver a message on 40 chapters. There are men who are talented enough and gifted enough to do that. I am not one of those today, okay? I thought maybe I could do an extended outline of Exodus, perhaps cover all the themes or major themes, and we will cover some of the themes. But you know what? In the end, I really want to do what serves you best. I believe that is to help to instruct you to be able to read through the book of Exodus. Well, this implies a couple things. Primarily, number one, that you will be reading along with us this year in the book of Exodus. You'll be preparing your hearts on Saturday, the week before, for the text that we're going to unfold 
and discover together each and every week that you too will be sitting along with us. But I assume most of you at least somewhat are familiar with Exodus. Either you've read through the book yourself, or perhaps you've seen Cecil B. DeMille's famous Ten Commandments, or perhaps more recently, DreamWorks animated The Prince of Egypt. Somehow, you have heard parts of the story of Exodus. I know that some of our favorite Bible stories come from this wonderful book. The story of Moses in the Nile, The story of the burning bush, the ten plagues, the Passover, and of course the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments, the manna and the quail, and the story of the golden calf. Today I'm going to help us, hopefully, God willing, us to properly interpret and apply these stories by fitting them together into the bigger picture, the story of God's redemption of his covenant people. In other words, we're going to do a little bit of what's called biblical theology today. And I can tell you, I need the Lord's help. So with that, let us pray right now and seek his help. Dear Lord, I do feel deeply inadequate this morning to even attempt to address 40 chapters of scripture. I'm aware for everything that I don't say, for everything that I do say, there'll be much more left unsaid. Well, I pray this morning that there'd be much more that you would enable us, that is, to hear and to grasp and apply your word. That we may walk away with a deeper love for you and your word as we traverse this book. Lord, build our faith for the journey. May you increase and may we decrease. May we see you as you really are in the book of Exodus. Give us eyes to see, O Lord. Give us ears to hear, we pray. Amen. Well, as you'll see in your notes, Roman number one, how to read Exodus. Quickly, you'll also see in your notes that the book of Exodus is written by Moses. At least Moses is traditionally ascribed as the author of the first five books of the Old Testament that we call the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five. It was written by Moses, and it was written and took place about 1,400 years prior to the coming of Christ. A precise date is not agreed upon, most likely in the early 1400s BC, could have been in the 1200s. The point is, it was over a millennium before Christ came. The book can be divided into three parts, as you'll see. The Exodus, or really the Israelites' departure from their slavery in Egypt. Second part, the law. The giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And the third major section of the book has still instructions and the construction of the tabernacle where God dwelled with his people in the wilderness. In Von Roberts' nifty little book called God's Big Picture, he labels the three sections this way. Number one, the God who delivers. Secondly, the God who demands. And thirdly, the God who draws near. I find that helpful. In our key verse for our entire study, one of the key verses, I believe, of this wonderful book is found in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Let me read it. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, 
And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. To help us explore this book this year, I want to name two commentaries that may be of help as you go through the book with us. Number one, excellent children's commentary. Exodus, a commentary for children by Nancy Gantz. I know a few of you have gone through her commentary on Genesis. I trust this will be equally as valuable in helping walk our children, and yes, us too, through this wonderful book. We do have a couple copies available today at our resource center. Also, for adults, we have the message of Exodus. A little more technical, but I think still accessible to us by J.A. Meyer. He wrote a great commentary on Isaiah. He also has another one on the book of Exodus. Two resources that I want to commend to you as you study together with us this book. Well, I hope that helps, the books, the commentaries, the outlines. I do realize that outlines and all that, it's just not very compelling, is it? God gave us more than outlines. Aren't you glad? He didn't give us a book of outlines. You know what he gave us? He gave us a story. Don't you like stories? I like stories. Unfortunately, we didn't get many stories in seminary. We didn't get any many books with pictures either in seminary. But you know what? We got a book today, Exodus, that is a story. And it is filled with life, with colors, and pictures. Pictures of what God is like, what we are like. Pictures of his mercy. So number one, if we're going to read and interpret Exodus properly, read it as a story. It is not an independent, isolated book of the Bible. In fact, it comes on the heels of Genesis. It's a story of promise, a story of fulfillment. It fits into a much bigger picture. In fact, Exodus is an an epic battle that started in Genesis and is carried into the book of Exodus and throughout the pages of Scripture. Whenever we at home watch a movie, my children almost invariably ask me, Daddy, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? In grown-up terms, they want to know who is the protagonist and who is the antagonist. Who's friend? Who's foe in the story? It's the same when we watch a football game. When we are watching the game, the kids will ask, Daddy, who are we rooting for? Who's the good team? Well, in our household, that's pretty easy. Son, it's whoever's rooting against the New England Patriots. <laughs> pretty easy than that. It's going to be easier than that, all right? Uh, you know who the foe is, and you know who Satan is. <laughs> I'm sorry, Katrina. Here's Katrina, third row here. Bostonites, diehard New England fan. The fact is, we're all envious of the Patriots. I admit it, okay? Who is friend? Who is foe? Uh, we see that in Genesis, don't we? Chapter 3. The fall of man. We see who the antagonist is. It's the serpent. It's Satan. That storyline is carried through, throughout Genesis and into the book of Exodus. After the fall of man, things get worse. Satan seems to be winning, doesn't he? We come to the narrative about the flood. And then after the flood, and God's remnant who he saves through Noah, we see one man chosen out of the misery of sin. And his name is Abraham. And to Abraham are given the covenant promises of God to redeem a people in this epic battle that we are a part of. We see that battle carry through as well as we 
end Genesis as we begin Exodus. In fact, it's very interesting. The book of Genesis, if you have your Bible, open it up. Genesis chapter 50. Let's look how the book ends. Chapter 50, verse 26. I'm going to keep your Bible open for a while today. We're going to be going back to Scripture throughout this entire sermon. The last verse of Genesis ends this way. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. In Egypt. Whoa, 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 whoa. Lord, I, I thought your promise to Abraham and to his descendants was for the promised land. It was for Canaan. Furthermore, you said to Abraham that his descendants would be multiplied like the dust of the earth, the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. Egypt, that wasn't part of the plan, was it? It was like Abraham had signed up for a flight to California, the promised land, <laughs> and ended up in New Mexico. And no knock on New Mexico, but it ain't the promised land. What happened? What went wrong? So we conclude the book with a narrative tension. Joseph is in Egypt, and so are Abraham's descendants. Second, not only are they in Egypt, but they're not as numerous as the sand on the seashore. In fact, they're 70. I can't count the stars in the sky, but I can count to 70. What has happened? But we're not done. For the very first word of Exodus begins in the Hebrew. You don't see it in the English text with a very important word. It's a Hebrew letter. Downstroke, a little um, <clears throat> curve on top. It's the word and. Now, I learned in English, you never start a sentence with the word and. Okay? But I think God has something in mind here. When we finish the word about Egypt, period, and the very next sentence begins with and. In other words, and God is not done yet. And God is committed to his covenant promises that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has not forgotten. So we pick up the story, this continuous story, in the book of Exodus. And we read in verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Aha, now we're seeing it. Yes, God is at work creating a people, multiplying a people, and blessing them that they may in turn be a blessing to the nations. We see the seed right here in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. But it won't be without a fight, will it not? Satan will not give up his attempt to destroy the promised offspring of Abraham and the patriarchs. No. We see Satan at work. Through his ally, who's his ally? The anti-God himself, Pharaoh, in the first several chapters. It is Pharaoh who is determined to oppress and destroy God's people. He enslaves them. He then instructs the midwives in Exodus to kill all the newborn Hebrew baby boys. But that doesn't work. So he instructs all the Hebrew young boys to be killed. Thus Moses is set in a Nile in a basket that he may not be killed, but be preserved and saved. And yet we read during all its oppression that the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jews, kept on multiplying. It reminds me of the words of the early church father, Tertullian, who said, 
The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You keep oppressing God's people and they keep multiplying in God's providence and preservation. Then we come to Exodus 6. Exodus 6, I believe, is the key to understanding this story. It's in your notes. If you want to turn to it as well, I do want you to look at God's word here. As we read Exodus verse, chapter 6, verse 2 through 8. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Verse 6 in your note. If you have a pen, please take note. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And there can be seven statements, I will statements. Underline those statements as you read those. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. Why? Because I am the Lord. My friends, that is the book of Exodus in a nutshell. God is set. God is committed to working out his covenant promises. God is committed to saving and creating a people for himself, for his own glory. Because he is God and he will do it. There you have the message of Exodus. In your quote, in your notes, we have a quote. Exodus is a story of the lengths to which God is willing to go to create for himself a people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation through whom his plan of universal blessing promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 will one day be realized. This is the story of Exodus. Church, this is our story as well. We are a part of the story. We are realizing the blessings today of God's promises made long ago. We are agents and ambassadors of this blessing. Alluding back to our theme verse we read earlier from Exodus 19, Peter writes these words almost 1,500 years later to the church, to us. Oh, these words sound so familiar, and they should. First Peter 2, verse 9. Speaking to the church, speaking to you and me. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our story is a story of deliverance, of darkness to light, from slavery to freedom. Our story is a story of the people of God those chosen by him, those chosen to represent him in holiness. Do you catch that? 
That is our story as well today. But Exodus is more than just a story. It is a story, it is a narrative, but it is more. Exodus is also theology. Don't let that scare you. Yeah, it's theology. It's a book about knowing God. Knowing Him through His signs and wonders. Knowing knowing Him through His law, His word. Knowing Him through His dealings with His people and the Egyptians. It's a book about knowing God. Exodus informs, you see, our understanding of who God is. Not just who God is, Exodus helps us to know who we are as well and how we as sinful humanity are to relate to a holy God. You see, we learn in Exodus that first and foremost, God is sovereign. Oh, friends, we need Exodus in our life. We need to be reminded of this, that God is the one writing the story. See, slavery in Egypt, all those years, 400 years plus, of God's people in bondage in Egypt, that was no temporary lapse on God's part. No, God wasn't sleeping for those 400 years. In fact, we read in Genesis 15 that God had foretold exactly what would happen. He knew it was going to happen. Why? Because he's sovereign. God's providence. He was in control. We read in Genesis 15, uh, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He was referring, of course, to Egypt. God is in control. It is God who raises up Moses to lead his people. It is God who hardens Pharaoh's heart. As we read in the scripture time and time again, See, God isn't reacting to Pharaoh, but he's using Pharaoh to carry out his ordained plan. Why? To bring glory for himself. I want to read the scripture here. It's so fascinating. It explains this hardening process that Pharaoh went through and gives us the sovereign explanation. It's found in Exodus 9, chapter 9, verse 34. I'm going to read into chapter 10. Take note of this. Oh, this is good. This is our sovereign God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways, are they? Exodus 9, verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Now verse 1 of chapter 10, the explanation. And the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. Why? That you may know that I am Lord. So Pharaoh hardened his heart. But who ultimately hardened Pharaoh's heart? It was God himself. And it's very clear throughout the text, numerous times, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? So God could display his glory that we would then pass on to our sons and them to their children, that God's glory would be displayed. 
That's the God we serve. That's the sovereign God that we see in the book of Exodus. You see, studying Exodus keeps us from our human sinful temptation to make God into our own image. I don't want to do that all the time. Listen, God is not a domesticated deity. He does not exist to do your bidding. He is God. He chooses whom he chooses. He hardens who he hardens. And he does it all for his glory. That's what we see in Exodus. That's the message that we need to hear time and time again. Lest we make God someone who simply exists for our purpose and our will. It is God who delivers his people. Who uses Moses to deliver his people. It is God who leads his people through the wilderness as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It is God who leads his people to Mount Sinai. It is he who initiates and confirms his covenant promises by giving them the law of God. It is God who dwells among his people, people who tabernacles among his people in the desert. Oh, that's good to hear. I woke up this morning. The alarm went off at 5.30. I slapped it. And immediately, this thought came in my mind. It's not about you. Sadly to say, I never had that thought before, at least at that time in the morning, okay? <laughs> Corey, it's not about you. That wasn't the flesh speaking. I believe it was God speaking through his word. I spent an entire week saturated in the book of Exodus. And what's the story? It's not about you, Corey. Oh, that's good. When, when I wake up, it is about me. It's about how I feel. On a Sunday when I'm preaching, I can be convinced it is about me. When Al's out of town, I can think sinfully that I'm running the show, that I am the director here. But God says in Exodus, no, God is on center stage. He is leading his people. Oh, yes, he uses human agents. He used Moses, did he not, and others. But may there be no doubt about it. God is in control. He is leading the charge. Oh, how we need to hear that. Secondly, God is sovereign. We also learn in this theology of Exodus that God is indeed holy. We see it so many places. In the burning bush, Exodus 3, 5. Don't need to turn there. You may even know it. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off. He's speaking to Moses. This is God speaking to Moses. Take the sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. We see this holiness expressed in the giving of the law to his people. That they are to be holy as he indeed is holy. We see his holiness in the importance of sacrifices, atoning for sin and cleansing us and purifying us from that which is unclean. We see his holiness in the building of the tabernacle, even in the curtains which were built according to plan that provided a protective shield between God's people and himself. Why? Because God is holy. But perhaps the most awesome picture of God's holiness is his presence on Mount Sinai. The Israelites were prevented from even touching the mountain when God hovered over Mount Sinai and gave the Book of the Covenant and Ten Commandments to Moses. If anything, any creature, any animal even stepped foot on the mountain, they died or were stoned to death. In Exodus 19:18, we read, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, 
and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. In the book of Hebrews, refers to Mount Sinai as a mountain of blazing fire in darkness and gloom and tempest. You get the picture? I remember as a child sitting in an ice cream parlor in Seattle, Washington. It was midday or early afternoon, and the sky suddenly became black, actually a deep charcoal gray. It appeared to be snowing, but it wasn't winter, and it wasn't snow. It was volcanic ash. It was May 18, 1980, and Mount St. Helens had erupted 100 miles away. It was the first, excuse me, the worst volcanic disaster in U.S. history. Reading about this disaster, we learned that at 8.32 a.m., a 5.2 earthquake caused the entire weakened north face of Mount St. Helens to slide away, suddenly exposing the partly molten gas rock, which exploded into pulverized lava. It sped down the mountain so fast that it passed up the avalanching north face. A volcanic ash column rose thousands of feet into the atmosphere and deposited ash in 11 states, including the restaurant where I was seated seated in Seattle, Washington. At the same time, this was happening. Snow, ice, and several entire glaciers melted on the spot, forming a volcanic mudslide that eventually washed down into the Columbia River. That's one of the pictures that we get of God in Exodus. He's a God to be feared. He is not like us. He is holy. This isn't just the Old Testament God. This is the holy God that we serve today as well. We need this picture. God is not to be tamed. God cannot be put in a box. Oh, how we try, don't we? I know many of us, we'd rather prefer what I might call a holy light God. As if he was a beer, you know? Great taste, same great God, but less filling. Less calories, less weight. Yeah, that's the God that I want. No, no. It's not the God that we need. It's not the God that we know through scriptures. We tend to think, even as Christians, that you know what? Well, God, he, he really tolerates my sin. He knows my bickering. He knows my little selfish indulgences, my little burst of anger. And somehow we think that our sin somehow is not as heinous to him as it is the sin of an unbeliever. Oh, we have been forgiven, my friends. Yes, we have. But let's not too quickly jump there. Let us feel the weight of our sin against the holy God. Let it weigh upon us that we may appropriate and praise him for his grace. But we start with the holiness of God. We start with seeing him as he is, and thus our sin. Exodus helps us do that. Exodus also teaches us, as if he didn't already know, that man is sinful. And here's the scariest part of all. The biblical dilemma poised in this drama, in this story. God is holy, man is sinful, and he's sinful to the core. What I appreciate about Exodus is that it gives us a painfully sobering assessment of man, of woman, of you, of me. God is holy. And frankly, when we read Exodus, man is found wanting. 
The Son of Man is not glossed over here. Moses, the chosen leader of his people, is a murderer. More than that, Moses has anger problems. Of course, he's leading over one million bratty kids, okay, <laughs> in the wilderness. So mommies, take heart if you're discouraged, okay? Moses had anger problems too, all right? Not excused, but part of his humanity nonetheless. Oh, The Israelites are continuously grumbling in unbelief and ingratitude. Right after they crossed the Red Sea, I believe in chapter 14, we hear the song of victory, the song of Moses, followed by the song of Miriam. It's a song of rejoicing, a dancing. The people are partnering. The deliverer has come. They have been set free. Then three, three verses later, what do we read? Exodus oh, 15, verse 24. And the people grumbled. And so it began. Exodus 16:2 says this. And the whole congregation the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill his whole assembly with hunger. Wow. You would have thought they were just come from Club Med back on the Red Sea, this all-inclusive resort, all the food they can eat. Meat, leeks, and onions. Oh, isn't that sin? Oh, how we can reflect back with this distorted view of reality and think, oh, it was so good, Lord. Why have you brought us here and failed to see God's grace and to fall into unbelief, disbelief, and yes, rebellion? I can relate to that, can you? But finally, we see in Exodus that God is also merciful. Thank God. He's a God who hears. Exodus 2.24. Don't need to turn there. I'm going to read a couple of verses just for you to hear. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He's a God who sees, Exodus 3, 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. He's a God who hears. He's a God who sees, and he's a God who relents. Exodus 32, 14. After the incident of the golden calf, Moses is up receiving the Mosaic law, the book of the covenant, and the people are down below committing idolatry and fornication. Moses comes down from the mountain, and God says, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. My friends, that is mercy. To sum up God's loving kindness and mercy and yet his holiness, we read one of the greatest and most profound promises of the Old Testament found in Exodus 34, verse 6. Oh, I'm glad this passage of scripture is in here. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. 
Church, we must not read Exodus only as a story. As a story, it is unfinished. The promises that are given are unfulfilled. Yes, God's people multiply, but they never reach the promised land. And when they do, in the next books of the Bible, starting with Joshua, there's no peace. Why? Because that peace is not found ultimately in a land. That peace is found in Christ himself. As a story, Exodus is incomplete. But we must read Exodus as more than just theology alone. Because as theology, it's actually a riddle without an answer. An answer. Case in point, Exodus 34, we just read. How can a holy God forgive the iniquities of sinful man and yet not leave the guilty unpunished? How can he forgive as a holy God, sinful man, yet leave us, sinful man, unpunished? It's a riddle that demands an answer. That brings us to the final point, to the Rosetta Stone itself. We must read Exodus not only as a story, not only as good theology, which it is. We must read Exodus as Christians, as Christians, as those on the other side of the cross. As we go back to this ancient book, a quote from Goldsworthy in your notes. In doing biblical theology as Christians, we do not start in Genesis 1 and work our way forward until we discover where it's all leading. Rather, we first come to Christ and he directs us to study the Old Testament. Catch this. In the light of the gospel. Christ, the gospel, is the Rosetta Stone that unlocks the riddles and fulfills the promises of Exodus. We must take the Old Testament and place our New Testament, the Greek script, for us in English, right next to the book of Exodus as we read to help us interpret the story. What is the gospel? Well, for those who have been with us for a while, you know it can be defined many ways. First of all, the better question is, who is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ died for our sins. To elaborate, the gospel is a story of a one and holy God who created man in his own image. Yet man cut himself off from God when he sinned and he rebelled. But God became man in the flesh, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we cannot live on earth, to fulfill the law that he gave, even in Exodus and to die the death that we deserved, the wrath and punishment for our own sin. But yet God resurrected his son Jesus to let us know that yes, the payment for our sins was made in full, and yes, the wrath of God has been exhausted. So we must now turn from our sins, repent, and trust Christ alone, that he and he alone has forgiven our sins that we may receive new life, eternal life. That is the gospel. Jesus Christ. His life, his death, and his resurrection. We must take all that now and use it to interpret Exodus if we are going to get its full meaning as Christians. And that we should. But you may say, well, hey, Corey, isn't that like cheating? You know, isn't that cheating? I mean, we're not in the New Testament yet. How can you say, how can you take what happened 1,400 years later, and say that's what it meant then. I mean, Moses didn't know who Christ was. Well, once he did it, not as we do. 
my friends, it's not cheating. You may say, well, you know, I've been at Sovereign Grace for a while now, and Paul and Vincent, you guys just see the gospel in everything. I mean, come on, isn't it like a little forced? The gospel's everywhere. You just read the gospel in every verse that you read. We don't. We probably should. We don't. But you know what? Christ does. Jesus taught that the Old Testament was God's word about himself. I referenced a few for you there in the notes. Don't have time to go through all of them. I want you to hear the one. It's on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, verse 25. I'm going to start there. Just listen. This is Christ talking to the disciples after his resurrection. And he said to his disciples, O foolish ones and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Let me translate. You idiots. Okay? You idiots. Next verse, okay? Got it? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Ah, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Verse 44, that same chapter. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. John 5.39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Those are Christ's words. He is giving us the interpretive key, the very key to interpretation that Jewish leaders did not have to he was speaking to in this occasion. Oh, we must use that key. We have Rosetta Stone, so to speak. It's not sitting under lock and key in the British Museum. No, it's in our Bible. It's in our hearts. And we have access to it. Second Timothy 3.15 And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All that we're reading and are about to go through in the coming months, is aimed at making us wise for salvation. I made the decision this fall to take my children through the Pentateuch. Every chapter, every verse. We've been in there for five months. I don't know, my wife thought I was a little crazy. I kind of wondered at times how it was going to go. But why did I do that? Because I believe that it is the scripture that makes us wise for salvation. Yes, I'm also teaching them about who Christ is in the gospel, but now we're going back to the first five books and walking through scripture to see how scripture points to God and his plan of redemption, which climaxes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Oh, may you do that this year as well. Walk, take the journey together through the book of Exodus. We must learn to make gospel connections just as we did the other night, right? A couple's home group. We tried to make the gospel connection between our marriage and the gospel. Wasn't it good? Oh, it was good. We're doing the same with this book of Exodus as well. You see, the Israelites are wandering in the desert for 40 years. What was that all about? It's about Christ who wandered in the desert for 40 days to begin his ministry. And when he walked in that desert, he fulfilled God's law. He was perfectly obedient to the Father. He passed the test where we have failed, where the Israelites failed in the wilderness, committing idolatry and the sin of unbelief. Christ passed.
pass the test in the wilderness for, on our behalf. Jesus is our deliverer. What was the Passover about? The tenth plague, the killing of the firstborn, and the Passover. It was about Christ, the Passover lamb. I don't have time, but you can see the references in your notes. Passover lamb, John 1, 29. What was all that story in Exodus about the manna? Oh, it's about Jesus, the bread of life. John 6, verse 25 through 40. What's all this instruction about building a tabernacle? What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Jesus came to earth, John 1, and dwelt. Literally, the word there used in the Greek is he tabernacled among us. Christ is our tabernacle. He is our new temple. What's this, all this about Moses as a leader, as a mediator? Oh, Moses pointed to the better mediator, the better high priest, Christ, who delivered us not just from Egypt, but from sin and the bondage of death. And that will deliver us to a better land, not a land in the Middle East, but the promised land, which is heaven. You see the connections? Jesus is the great I am of Exodus 3. Jesus is indeed the answer. Exodus is ultimately a proclamation of the gospel. Its gospel theme can be stated in closing. God is committed to saving and creating a people for his own glory. He is committed to saving and creating a people for his own glory. I don't have time to go through it. In your notes, I'll give you a simple outline of how to summarize Exodus. First 18 chapters, God saves a people. We are a people who are defined by our deliverance. We are a people today defined by God's grace. But Exodus doesn't stop. Exodus 14. There's still 26 chapters to go. You see, the deliverance is not the climax of the book of Exodus. We know by the sheer amount of content, and even time itself slows down as we read what follows. The climax is God making the covenant with his people and ratifying it at Mount Sinai and saying, you are my people, you are a holy nation, you are a kingdom of priests. That's the climax. So God, yes, saves the people. And not only that, he then creates a people. Chapters 19 through 40. A people who are defined by two things, primarily. A people defined by God's law. It's God's law, his word, that makes the people of God distinct from all our people. You are to be holy as I am holy. And secondly, a people who are defined and distinguished by God's presence. By God's empowering presence. That's how we are to be known here, even as a church, my friends. As a people of God who have been saved, delivered from sin, the bondage of sin and death. A people defined by his word and a people who are experiencing and distinguished from the rest of the peoples and nations in the world by God's empowering presence. God said, I am. I am the great I am. When he said that, he meant, I am with you. We see that in the picture of the tabernacle, which indeed is Christ himself. Listen, I'm a charismatic. I believe in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit are valid for today. Not just because because I read the Old Testament or New Testament. Because I believe in both Testaments, the old and the new. God wants to dwell his people God wants to empower us with his presence. Why? For his glory, that you may know God and the watching world may know him as well. Does your life speak of God's deliverance, of his holiness, of his presence? Are we a people, are we a church marked by God's holiness and presence? 
If we were to understand the message of Exodus clearly, the answer is resounding yes. And we're going to proclaim that now in conclusion of our service. I can invite the worship team forward. We're going to take communion. What a way to declare and to proclaim the message of Exodus. So if you can just put your Bibles down, perhaps notes quietly, want to resume a respectful tone here as we conclude this wonderful sacrament of the church called the Lord's Supper.